Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Bear Guys and Tua T Fitness. The How Dare You podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Hello and welcome to the How Dare You podcast, the Ishtar edition. My name is Michael Schantz. I am from the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, of course, is your friend and mine, Lady Chu. Say hi to the good people, Chu. Hi, good people. (laughs) I bet half of them don't even know what this movie is. Never heard of it ever. I'm sure you didn't before this adventure began. Oh, no. No, no. I had no idea. You're like, let's watch Ishtar. I'm like, what the fuck is that? that a cartoon <laughs> that's what I, I was like oh that's weird this is gonna be like an animated one that's weird am i watching nope. bugs bunny is that what's happening <laughs> yeah is it that one where he's battling yosemite sam in the desert <laughs> uh this movie all right well now hang on chew you just wait right I, there I won't. i'll wait i'll wait <laughs> i have a feeling You might have hated this movie as much as America seemed to have hated the movie at the time. But we're going to get into it. Listen, for those that don't know, Ishtar is a 1987 movie directed by Elaine May, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, along with Charles Grodin, Isabella Adjani. You know, Carol Kane's in it. You get a, a early viewing of Matt Frewer. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's uh, he was one of the CIA dudes in the movie, too. He is Max Hedrum. Do you even know Max Hedrum? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you have Shut no up. frame of reference for even a scene in Back to the Future 2, do you? Nope. Have you seen that movie, Back to the Future 2? Yeah, Mr. Chu watches those movies all the time. He's a fan? Oh, yeah. Okay, when he goes into the Cafe 80s diner and that sort of computer-generated thing is there talking to him. Well, Mm -hmm. is it Max Hedrum? Because I know that they do Ronald Reagan, too. I don't know. All right, fuck it. Moving on. (laughs) Disregard that, everybody. Disregard. (laughs) At any rate. Look up Max Headroom, audience. You do it as well, Chu. God damn it. Chu was born two years after this movie was released. She knows nothing about anything in this movie. Nope. All right, Chu. The thing about this movie is it is one of the most egregious failures in Hollywood. It's known as the biggest failure, maybe, in Hollywood history, which is unfair and Not true. There have been bigger failures, but this movie is like the test case for everything that can go wrong with making a movie. It had a budget of $55 million. It did take number one at the box office its first week with $4.3 million. Not a lot. And unfortunately, it only made $14.3 million in the USA and in the world. I think all of that, I would say, yeah, that makes sense. 
Do I think, although I will agree with you, I, I don't think that it's the biggest failure ever. Yes, thank in you. In cinematic history. This movie is... But it's is... definitely strange. <laughs> it's not, I'm not saying it's good, <laughs> but I'm saying it's not the best or the worst movie that's ever been made. All right, Elaine May, the director herself, has said, if all the people who hated Ishtar had seen Ishtar, I'd be a rich woman today. (laughs) Now, do you even know who Elaine May is? Does that name strike a chord at all? No, but I was definitely surprised to find out that a female had directed this movie. Now, yeah. For reasons I don't know, I was just surprised. What surprised you about it? I don't know. Like the sensibility of it or? Yeah, I guess. Like I couldn't grasp. I mean, I found some things funny. So it wasn't like I was totally deadpan the whole time. But I was just really interested in the fact that this whole plot, a female director could get behind. She wrote it. Oh, well, (laughs) even worse, I guess. I don't. No, that I agree. Okay, here's the thing. First of all, Elaine May is kind of an improvisational stand-up comedian. She she had a famous duo. She was part of Nichols and May. So Mike Nichols, who ended up became becoming a very famous director himself, was part of a comedy duo, Nichols and May. I mean, the top of the top, the cream of the crop of fantastic work they were doing at a certain time. Does that make sense? Yeah. She is, she was revered as, as a writer and specifically to both actors who appear in this movie. She did uncredited writing for Reds, which Warren Beatty directed and received a best director uh, Oscar for. She also did uncredited writing on Tootsie, a 1982 movie directed by Sidney Pollack that Dustin Hoffman was in. Definitely won Jessica Lange a Best Supporting Actor award. Uh, he was nominated for Best Actor, but didn't win. But, but both these actors felt like they owed Elaine May a great debt. And that's where this whole kind of delightful shit ball starts. (laughs) Does that make sense at least? Like put it in a frame of reference of like how this movie got made? Yeah. So add to it that Warren Beatty is politically minded. He wanted, and they were really great friends, he and Elaine May. I mean, they loved each other. And this was, he thought of this movie as his gift to her. I want you to have a blank check and do whatever you want. And what she wanted to do was a Bob Hope kind of Bing Crosby road picture in the desert. That's what she wanted an homage to with this movie. Okay. Thoughts? (laughs) You've got a look on your face that says wrong thought. (laughs) Which, by the way, is what Dustin Hoffman thought. Like I get, I get where she's coming from, but it 
the execution and the end product was a miss. Okay. This is the weirdest plot. But is it the greatest the miss movies. ever? No. I got to tell you, I kind of no. like this movie. It makes me laugh. I don't hate it. Okay. Like, I, I do not hate this movie. Is, is it the strangest plot out of the movies we've watched? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Like, hands down. Weirdest plot? This, number one. Let me ask you this, because Dustin Hoffman, he declined the role when it first came to him. He, I can't remember the man's name, but apparently there was somebody that, Dustin Hoffman would do nothing unless this man said, yeah, you should do it. Tootsie was actually really the last thing he had done in 1982. And we're talking, I mean, I'm sure they were filming in 86, but so, you know, we're talking a good five years later. In the meantime, he had been portraying, he was in Death of the Salesman. So he was Willie Loman on Broadway. And he'd been living with that role for a while. I think they might have even filmed that role on stage. Yeah. So, but as far as I know, that was the only thing he'd been doing. He wanted this story not to go to the desert at all. He thought it was interesting enough, these two, you know, smucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no schmucks. No smuck. That's a joke, if you could call it that, in the movie. But again, it made me laugh. You know, Warren Beatty is like smuck. What'd you say? Yeah. Smuck. No, schmuck. What? Schmuck. (laughs) Smuck. No, say sh. Say muck. Muck. Now put them together really fast. Schmuck. Smuck. (laughs) (laughs) So you can imagine that that joke would exist in a Bob Hope Bing Crosby movie. Yeah. But those movies... I think maybe part of it is maybe like this movie suffered from its actual locations. They're shooting in New York. They're shooting in Morocco. You know, if it was just, if it looked, maybe if if maybe if it like aesthetically it looked less pleasing and less real, like if they were shooting on sand dunes built on a soundstage, <laughs> the fakeness might have helped that kind of humor. I don't yeah. know. It was just, I don't, I don't even know where to start. I don't think, (laughs) fuck. I don't think that Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty were bad in it. I thought they were good. I enjoyed their relationship. I enjoyed most of the dialogue that was going on. Their weird, um, blissfully unaware. Yeah. Uh. I don't know what I'm trying to say. No, but you're saying it exactly right. The characters are kind of vapid. Yeah. They're just blissfully unaware. And blissfully unaware of how bad they are. Like, you're not good. I know. And in the beginning, at some point, they're on stage. um, And I kept thinking, like, God, this somehow reminds me of Step Brothers. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that relationship that they had. Obviously, like, huge time gap in between those two movies, but their relationship we're like oh yeah like we, we rock like we're jamming like no you're not right. yeah. <laughs> you fucking suck <laughs> and the songs that they come up with i think they're that's sublime. like something i make up 
I think they're so sublime. <laughs> I think they're so ridiculously, wonderfully bad. <laughs> That's like stuff a 10-year-old would come up with. Well, and that was the hard you know? part. From what I understand, you know, I can't remember the person's name who worked on the music. I mean, I know that Elaine May wrote a lot of the music, but there was another person involved as well. And the hard part for him was, or for them maybe, was making the songs bad enough that we understood that these were two terrible lounge acts, but not so (laughs) bad that you as an audience couldn't kind of revel in how bad they were. And on that front, I think they struck the right chord. I think they're exactly as bad as they should be. Um, Yeah, I would totally agree with that. Okay. Like the songs, well, the one, the main one, uh, what is it? Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Yeah. Why is that catchy? It's so amazing. Like, why is that horrifically catchy? I ended the movie. I was like, ah, oh, shit, I'm going to have that stuck in it's my head. It's going to be in my head. <laughs> Telling the truth is dangerous business. <laughs> and the rest doesn't make any fucking sense. That's so, <laughs> so stupid. I fucking love it. So I'll tell you this, too. And so, all right. Like. Again, you don't have, you know, you don't have a frame of reference for like how much Hollywood talked about this movie in 1987. So part of what doomed this movie was it had so many production problems. And I mentioned earlier that Warren Beatty just said, Elaine, may you have a blank check to make this movie? That is almost literally what happened. They never they never wrote down a budget. They never wrote down, we'll spend this much and stick to it. It was just spending, 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 including the two stars got $5.5 million each. So 11 of $55 million she got for writing and directing another million dollars. So, you know, you're getting close to a quarter of the budget just on those three people, you know? Yeah. And when you consider... They actually shot in Morocco. The only reason they shot in Morocco, they didn't want to do it at all. I mean, Elaine May did, but the, the you know, Columbia Pictures didn't want them to do that. But part of the problem was that Coca-Cola had bo- started buying into companies to start making movies. This movie made them sell all their shares and stop making movies. They're like, we want out of this business. Oh, my God. So... Part of it was that whatever money Coca-Cola had, they had actually in Morocco, meaning that that the money that they spent had to be spent in Morocco or they couldn't spend it. So they were like, all right, we may as well send them there. It's the only way we can spend this money. So that's how they get to Morocco. Wow. I know, right? That's dangerous business. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck? On top of that, you've got a guy, his name's David Putnam, who I think had just taken over at Columbia. I want to say it's Columbia. I think that's right. So he had taken over Columbia Pictures. He won an Oscar for Chariots of Fire the year that Reds was nominated for Best Picture. And I guess in which Warren Beatty directed... Warren Beatty won Best Director, Chariots of Fire won Best Picture, and I guess there was some bad blood in how they all sides were kind of trying to promote their film. So David Putnam hates Warren Beatty, (laughs) 
So he kind of wants this movie to fail. I, there's just like weird shenanigans behind the scenes of this movie. But when word starts getting out in Hollywood, A, that the budget was, it's like the, the biggest budget for a comedy in the history of movies at that point. Wow. So you have a soaring budget. You have all kind of problems on set. And then the movie was released, I don't even know, something like 10 months after they wanted to do it or something like that. At the very least, I think they wanted to release it at Christmas and they didn't release it until May or something like that, April or May. All of those are not good signs for a movie. And so the word was kind of out that this movie was the biggest piece of shit that ever existed. So nobody went and saw it. (laughs) But since then, people have saw it and thought, listen, not a great movie, but it's not the biggest shit that ever existed. Like, there's funny stuff in it. Even, um, what's his name? uh, Gary Larson, who does the Far Side cartoons. He once created a Far Side cartoon that said Hell's Video Store. And it was just a video store with thousands and thousands of copies of Ishtar. (laughs) And he drew that cartoon having never seen the movie. And then he saw it on a plane and he like issued an apology. Wow. He said, listen, like a lot of people probably talked about Ishtar without having seen it. I, I made that cartoon without having seen it. And I'm not saying it's the greatest movie, but... I unfairly maligned that movie with my cartoon. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. Like, there's funny moments. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's not it's not the worst piece of shit I've ever watched or even, you know, the worst out of the ones that we've watched together. Um, this is middle, this is middle of the road. Yeah. If I'm ranking it. Yeah. Okay. How many grievances did you have? I, you know, I probably would have had more, but I got lost and mildly uninterested in the middle of the movie. So I I I only wrote down, yeah, I only wrote down 15, but I had eight positives. Yeah. Cause I have like 10 grievances. But I actually have like, I, I think I have like 20 positive points. Oh, wow. Things that yeah. actually made me laugh. I'm like, no, yeah. I think that's, that's funny. Yeah. So uh, like, I, you know, here's the thing. So lastly, just to kind of wrap up this first segment, let's talk about this movie's made in 1987. The How Dare You Awards do not exist yet. But what would it be nominated for? Would you nominate this for worst title? Uh, it's hard to say without knowing all the other titles of 1987, but... Yeah, true. But, I mean, having already watched the movie, like, it, the title Ishtar doesn't describe the movie. That's just where they're at. Right. And they're not even there for the entire movie. So yeah, I'm I don't on the think fence it's... about worst title. I don't, it, it doesn't win, but I mean, I can see why, you know, it may or may not be nominated for that. I would say most ridiculous slash confusing as fuck plot. Concept. <laughs> so like, what the fuck? Well, and here's the other thing. I mean, I don't know how much people were looking forward to this movie, but you could make an argument for biggest disappointment. You absolutely could put in 
forgettable. Well, that's a thing too. I don't know. You could you could nominate both Beatty and Hoffman. Although I don't think Beatty technically has won an Academy Award at that point for acting. But you could have a most forgettable performance by an Oscar winning actor. Yeah. And a lot of times that just boils down to. Yeah, have a, a, a bad movie that an Oscar nominated actor was in and this would fit the yeah. bill. So I wouldn't say that it's either one of them were forgettable. Precisely for the fact that they're in this movie. I know. And this movie had so much negative hype. Um, but you could go most ridiculous concept. 150%. All right. This just is crazy to me. Crazy. All right. Well, we're just getting started, everybody. We're trying to hash out what went wrong with one of the most famous shitty movies of all time that I contend is not as shitty as people say. But when we come back... We'll try and get into the plot of this movie and talk a little bit more about it. Sound good, Chew? Fantastic. Fucking A. We'll be right back. (laughs) Can I ask you a question? Do you like beer? I like beer. It's required by law that you like beer when you're living in San Diego, California, but even I can get confused and dizzied by the amount of choices that you can see at your local beer store. What's a person to do? I'll tell you what you do. You'll watch The Vegas Beer Guys, a live show on Instagram and Facebook, and they will set you right as to what beers you should have in your life or should not have in your life. The Vegas Beer Guys are brought to you by Dan Aker, the beer professional, and Stephen Weiss, self-proclaimed beer novice. They'll drink beers for you and drink beers with you. Go ahead and check out their live shows and they'll tell you which beers you should be having in your fridge. Everybody wants the perfect combination of molten hops in your life. And Dan Aker and Stephen Weiss are the perfect combination of fantastic and wonderful. Check them out on Facebook. Check them out on Instagram. Find them. You're going to watch their show and love their show. They give away free merch during their shows. So go ahead and check out the Vegas Beer Guys. What a great time. And we're back. Chu and I are here discussing the 1987 Elaine May picture, Ishtar. All right, Chu, let's talk a little gender politics, because like you said, you were surprised that a woman directed this. And I think there's some gender shit going on here. But at the same time, Elaine May, apparently, from what I understand, did struggle on this movie. However, there's a thing called movie jail. Elaine May never directed another movie after this. Oh, no. I meant that sincere. I think I... (laughs) You tried to be sincere. I sounded sarcastic. I I was sincere. (laughs) insincere is your default position so yeah (laughs) it just comes out naturally even when you're trying to be sincere i'm just really indifferent about a lot of things so you can't tell (laughs) i think she did direct a documentary about uh mike nichols uh mike nichols he direct so he i mean he moved on to like he directed the graduate chew you know 
plenty of stuff you you probably like. Maybe Working Girl, Birdcage, Primary Colors. He directed those movies. All right. So they were part of a comedy duo, and she was put in movie jail after this movie. Almost everything was laid at her feet, even though, like, look, she has to take some responsibility, right? She wrote this movie. She directed it. Apparently, there was plenty of misgivings. She would do things like, say, I want some sand dunes, and a guy would go out and find sand dunes. And then she'd say, what are you talking about? I don't want sand dunes. I want it flat. And so everybody was like, what the fuck? The director of photography apparently had to start telling her that he wanted to set up his camera where he didn't want to set it up because she would tell him to do the exact opposite of whatever he wanted to do. So he had to learn to tell her, I'm going to put it over here so that she'll say, no, I want it over there, which is where he wanted it in the first place. She and Warren Beatty apparently started fighting on set constantly, especially that scene at the end with the the battle scene where they're shooting at the helicopters. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was supposed to be much a much bigger battle, and she was freaking out about she didn't know what she wanted to do, which sort of stalemated production. And he's like, we have to do something. And she said, you want to film it? You film it. And then Warren Beatty, who's sort of, you know, he's politically left. He's, uh, 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 you know, a big liberal. He's for the advocacy of women was like, I was, he was put in a position of, oh my God, because he was the producer on the movie. So it was, if I replace a woman on this movie, I'm the biggest piece of shit that ever lived. I can't do that. Then Columbia Pictures said, well, we'll get rid of her. We'll just tell her we're going to fire her. But he stuck up for her and said, if you do that, then Dustin and I are leaving. So, like, this whole shitty experience had to stay as it was. So, for me, I'm kind of, I'm I, like, I find it remarkable that this movie is as good as it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After hearing that shit show, like, that, that shit would drive me nuts. Right? Having a boss like, like it's that, a miracle like, that they could on. get what they did get based on all of that shit. Yeah. Well, good for them. Because it's not terrible. It's not the worst movie ever made. It's fucking funny. Like when Dustin Hoffman discovers, so first Warren Beatty's wife leaves him. She's the only woman he's ever been with, and he's, like, distraught. And, you know, Dustin Hoffman takes care of him, and he's like, it's going to be okay. I love, by the way, that, like, in real life, Warren Beatty is considered one of the most handsome men that ever lived, and Dustin Hoffman is not considered that at all. (laughs) Yeah. But then in the movie, they're selling that, you know, Warren Beatty is awkward and weird, and Dustin Hoffman just draws women in wherever he goes. And I feel like they played that well. Like, Warren Beatty's just kind of, like, really unsure in the way he carries himself. And you're like, God, this guy's a fucking wham-wham. And then Dustin Hoffman, just the way he walks, like, he's confident. The clothes he wears, his his fashion. I loved how outrageous <laughs> he dressed. Fucking loved it. Yes. And I think they, they played that really well. Yeah. Which is a testament to them as actors, too, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I know that... Sorry, go ahead. I was was agreeing with you. They had this weird-ass script, and they're like, all right. Yeah. Putting everything we've got into this weird shit. 
Right. So I know that Dustin Hoffman, he wanted the whole thing to stay in New York. And at a certain point, he just said, whatever, it's for Elaine. I'm just going to be here to do my bit, you know? Mm -hmm. But even say like uh, when Dustin Hoffman, when he when his wife leaves him and now the facade has dropped and he has to call Warren Beatty and say, I've been lying to you this whole time. I'm not a macho man. I'm, you know, and he goes out on the ledge and he's <laughs> yeah. going to kill himself. Oh, my God. There's that shot where they kind of have like a a medium sized shot. And you see that cop who's like trying to repel the seven feet from the top of the building down to the ledge. Yeah, I think that's hysterical. <laughs> it's so stupid. That's also not how those situations happen. Like if you yeah, have they don't a jumper, let another man out on the ledge no. and the cops don't <laughs> rush up there and scare the jumper. They, not usually. Yeah, they talk him down. They have conversations. That's not how that goes down. His parents are there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> it's there's good and the bad. I tell you, good and the bad. Yep. Well, let me ask you this. I thought the one thing that like a grievance I wrote down. I thought it was weird that the movie started. And then all of a sudden we have a flashback to where they met. And this flashback's like 12, 15 minutes long. Yeah, I didn't even know we were in a flashback. Yeah, to recap the history of their relationship together. Yeah, it was. I didn't realize we were in the flashback until several minutes in. We're like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing here. But there was. But there's lots of little shit. Yeah. There's lots of little shit in this movie that's funny. I love that they cold call an agent and he answers the phone and says, free talent agency. <laughs> Yeah, you got you, you got yourselves a, a winner on that one. Yeah, free, free agent. Excellent. And he's got two jobs, one in South America and one in Africa. <laughs> yeah, what did and then to justify we're like, "Oh, or where are we going? Honduras or Morocco?" And Dustin Hoffman's like, "Morocco, it's safer." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they go okay. to a country that's under siege. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, and I love to. Well, I think one of the most successful things about this movie is whenever they actually play. Like the first time they're playing for the agent, trying to get him to, like, take them on as a client. And you you just sort of see in the audience a, a, a sea of people with their mouths agape. Like, what the fuck are we watching right now? As they flounder on stage, but with, like, as much energy and and passion as they possibly can. Uh, it was good. <laughs> I don't usually go for the cringy, awkward moments uh, on TV or in movies. It really gives me anxiety, but I actually That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, because you mentioned that on one of our last podcasts, that oh. those uncomfortable moments, like uh, Jack Walsh talking to his daughter, usually would be a, something that upsets you. Things yeah. that are uncomfortable. So I can't imagine you're watching a lot of Curb Your Enthusiasm without reeling. Nope. But um, but it didn't bother you that much? No, no, because they kind of set it up early on. Like, these guys have no idea how terrible they are. So just roll with it. <laughs> and so it just, it wasn't as bad. And then, you know, they, they have that same type of moment at the end of the movie. And... I thought it was even funnier then. So 
yeah, it wasn't as cringy as I thought it was going to be. And that first scene, you know, who's on, I love watching a movie f- from, a, you know, decades ago and seeing an actor that you see a lot now that you like literally has no lines. You see this guy, you won't know the name, I don't think. His name's Dylan Baker. But he was in the audience just with like mouth fully open, like, <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I love those moments. <laughs> holy shit these guys are nuts on another level such a good time all right so listen i mean for starters we're already 30 minutes into this podcast but if you're listening to this you might have needed to watch ishtar first but if you don't know these two lounge you know these two lounge singers who act you know who are a singing duo they want to make a record they're looking at Simon Garfunkel outside of the store. And they're talking about dangerous business being being just as good as that. I'm telling you, it's so good. I love it. And that's right in that part. Warren Beatty asks three times. You think so? I'm telling you, we're as good as any of these people. You think so? I'm telling you, dangerous business is fantastic. You think so? <laughs> so... They get their free talent agent and they get sent to Morocco and immediately get embroiled in espionage with CIA agent Jim Harrison, played by Charles Grodin. They give a passport and the luggage or clothes to Isabella Adjani, who's playing Shira Assel. And apparently there's a map that can split apart the Middle East. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay. And you guys might be thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's a map? <laughs> like a treasure yeah, hunt kind of thing? Yeah. Nope. There's a map. But not a treasure hunt. No, but... It's just something they need to show the people, I think, that the regime is... Legit? Corrupt? Corrupt. I, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I got so lost and confused once you get into that part of the story. You're like... Wait, I thought these were lounge singers just trying to catch a big break, but now it's like somebody finds a map that's been buried for hundreds of years. What the hell is going on? At any rate, she takes Dustin Hoffman's jacket. She sews the map into the lining of the jacket because she wants... They're in Morocco. They're trying to get to Ishtar. She'll be stopped and she wants him to get the jacket through with the map. Correct? I'm sure. Okay. See? I think that's right. Exactly. This is why <laughs> This is why it's weird cuz we don't know. You don't even know. I think I know. This obviously bothers me. If I don't know, I almost know. This might be the first time where you're not actually sure. Like, I look to you for guidance with these movies. So I'll tell you before we start recording, hey, I need you to leave this one because I I have I have thoughts all over the place. You're like, I'm uh, I'm not going to be leading a lot of this conversation. I'll respond. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay, you know, we just talked about how much we love Charles Grodin. Did you love seeing him again? Oh, absolutely. I thought he was funny. Okay. Um, he's not the best CIA agent, 
precisely no, for yeah. the fact that they put all of their attention on these two idiots. Like, this is not why they're here. Okay. But they, I love that they even have lines in the movie where, you know, some of his fellow CIA agents are like, I can't believe these two are, <laughs> the, you know, in charge yeah. of trying to save the Middle East. Yeah. Well, shocker. They're not. Right. Yeah. But essentially what Charles Grodin is doing is lying to Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty have met the woman, which for some reason, like, there's something at play where they think she's a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. But then she's flashing boobs to Dustin Hoffman. In the airport, by the way, in Morocco, that's not going to happen. Okay? That would never, ever, ever happen. A woman flashing. No. No, it's definitely a 1980s movie because the second she flashes tit, the two men (laughs) like lose consciousness. Yeah. Like Dustin Hoffman can't function after that. He's just staring at the tit. Not helpful that, you know, men, you know, men are learning, learning from this movie that you you cease all motor functions (laughs) when you see boobs. Just stare. (laughs) And what did he say when he saw it? He's like, oh, you have one of those? Or, or look what you have. Yeah, something. something like that. <laughs> you have, um, you've got, uh, yeah. She's like, yes. <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> and then she kisses Warren Beatty later, later, but at the time he thinks she's a 15-year-old boy. Yeah. But starts kissing her back, so that's a little fucking weird. Yeah. And then he catches himself. He's like, whoa, are you just... You stay over there. But then he he thinks that she's a man for too long. And by I mean too long, I mean like a solid 60 seconds. That's too long. Right. And that's the thing. Like nothing about her reads as man to me. No. Even if she's pretending to be a boy, she sounds and looks like a woman. She's beautiful. Yeah. But then they only realize... And concede to the fact that she is beautiful once beautiful once they're sure that she isn't a man. <laughs> so uh, that's a miss. It's all a little fucking weird. <laughs> and then, like, she's trying to get luggage. She's trying to get the luggage back to get the map back. But now the map's in his coat. So I think Dustin Hoffman's gone to meet Charles Grodin. And she starts wrestling with Warren Beatty. And surprise, he accidentally grabs Tit. And he's like, are these breasts? Like, he's hanging on to those puppies. And he's, yeah, he's hanging like a rock climber. (laughs) Like, he's going up to the top of El Capitan, man. (laughs) And then finally she's like, okay, like, that's enough. Like, get your fucking hands off me. But there's this whole thing that never really pans out where they're both falling in love with the woman. Yeah. And she never has to make a choice. At the end, she's crying and just says, I think they're both. Wonderful. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. It's like they're all meant to be. All right. So this is the whole middle section of the movie where you learn about the map. Charles Grodin recruits Dustin Hoffman. She recruits Warren Beatty. And then at a certain point, everybody decides that it would be easier if these two just died. So they send them out into the desert yeah. to die. With a blind camel. I can't tell you how much anxiety I had for that camel. <laughs> I almost had to fast forward it because I was I was worried about how it was being treated. I I was just very worried. 
<laughs> I almost <laughs> there's a lot of funny stuff with the camel though. Really? Yeah, it really bothered the me. The camel keeps like running into people and dusting them. It's like, what's with this camel? What is it? Fucking blind? It's like gas section. Yeah, I I asked for and it. And then. Charles Grodin finds him, and he's like, what is with this camel? What, is it blind? Yes, actually. <laughs> and the camel steps on his foot. Yeah. And later he's wearing the air cast. He's got like a little yeah. foot cast. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really that was funny. Good. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah. Well, I had something to say, and now I forgot you. Well, I'll continue talking about the camel because it really, really bothered me. It's clearly distressed. <laughs> very distressed no one seems to give a shit about the fucking camel he doesn't want to go with you okay he just wants to go have a dirt nap just let him go have a dirt nap okay he can't fucking see poor camel and you know that camel's probably dead because it's older than me and certainly by now you know what camel did have a dirt nap though all right here's the thing chew okay for the filming of this movie they wanted to find a blue-eyed camel to represent the camel as being blind Apparently, blue-eyed camels are rare. So the guy who was going to go find the camel in the markets found, within like the first half hour, I think, the, the most perfect camel, blue-eyed. Now, being shrewd, he wanted to find more blue-eyed camels so he could bring the $700 price down, which is ridiculous because you're spending $55 million on a fucking comedy, more money than anybody's ever spent. Nobody's asking for receipts. Yeah. This movie's fucking crazy out of budget and nonsense but this guy wanted to save some camel money they could not find another blue-eyed camel so the next day he went back hey remember that camel we want that camel we'll buy it and the uh, seller had to say oh unfortunately i ate it last night (laughs) oh my god on that happy note we'll take a break does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie have you been sitting on your couch for weeks nay have you been sitting on there for months well it's time for you to get back in shape check out to a t fitness you can find them on instagram you can find them on facebook to a T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. And we are back. Lady Chu and I are here discussing the 1987 film Ishtar. Chu, we're coming to the end of it. Great. <laughs> awesome. Don't disparage Ishtar. Come on. Ishtar's fun. No, nah, I just said that because it made me laugh. All right. So, I mean, we got into a point in the story. We were kind of explaining at the break this whole idea of 
espionage gets involved with all this shit. And both groups, the woman and the CIA, push them out into the desert to kill them. One tells them there's going to be a mirage. One tells them that the beads will glow and bring them back. Everybody's lying to them. Yeah. And they start, they like start running out of water. I love that moment where like Dustin Hoffman kind of passes out and vultures start landing on the ground. (laughs) And then he wakes up and he goes, are we at the Oasis? Warren Beatty says, does this look like an Oasis? (laughs) Yeah. Look at the birds. Oh, are those vultures? (laughs) (laughs) And then when Warren Beatty's crawling over to Dustin Hoffman, the bird yeah. gets close to him. He's like, I'm alive. Like, I'm alive. Are you serious? Are you kidding? Right. <laughs> Get away from me. <laughs> I'm still alive. Yeah. What do you think of the arms sale? Oh, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> I didn't like it. No. No. I couldn't tell. Come on. I didn't. I couldn't tell if it was offensive or not. Maybe it was just I was offended for having been forced to watch it. But I couldn't tell him, you know, pretending horribly to be Berber Arab or Arab Berber. I apologize to anybody for not knowing the difference. But, you know, he doesn't know the language. He's just like spewing off shit. And <laughs> He announces. So there are men in the desert selling guns, bombs, rocket launchers to a group of I don't know, bandits, whatever, desert marauders. Warren Beatty goes down because he's got kind of local garb on. He's just trying to steal some water. Yeah. But then somebody notices Dustin Hoffman and says, are you the interpreter? Or are you the the auctioneer or whatever he calls him? I don't yeah. even remember. He's like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> and he comes down and tries to sell guns to people that he, whose language he doesn't speak. He tells yeah. them that he does speak English, doesn't speak Arabic, but knows all of their dialects. Yeah. They naturally think he's lying and tell them or tell him to tell them their camels, what, are gone or have been stolen or something. Yeah. So he makes up gibberish, but luckily he's got Warren Beatty on his side behind the men saying, like just talking more gibberish, yeah. like oh, and they like walk away <laughs> yeah. to check on camels, and then they come back and sell guns to them. So random. <laughs> Didn't see that one coming. I was like, oh, they're lost in the desert. Like someone will come find them, or they'll make it back to town. No, they come across an arms dealer, and I don't know. Yeah, it was so random. I could have done without. But it sets up the whole end, Chew, the battle with it the does. helicopters. Yeah, you're right. It does. Because now the CIA is onto them and they, like, they have a tracker on them. I think it's really funny when they show that tracker, too, where the, <laughs> yeah, and where they're the like, camel's They're like, what are they going? doing? Are they drunk? They're like, no, the camel's blind. Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> yep. Yep. Just a blind camel. Yep. Everything they do with that camel in the desert is pretty funny, too, when they're trying to get it to, like, walk and it won't. He's like, oh, you stupid camel. I felt Sit here and die, then. I felt so bad for that fucking camel. <laughs> uh, Chew would like to start a GoFundMe page for, that camel. for blind camels. 
that'll be one of our next commercials. I'll do You're a Sarah McLachlan song. Talk about black yes. camels. Oh my God. I'm going to do a heal the camels commercial <laughs> just for this episode. <laughs> okay. But what'd you think of the battle scene itself though? Um, it was, it was okay. I mean, it's it right. like I said earlier, it clearly was shortened from a big thing yeah. into a fairly small thing. Yeah. But there's still funny shit in it. I love it when, uh, who, who's the person that does it? Is it, uh, oh, I got to flip my page. Is it Shira? I think it's Shira. I think it's Shira. Uh, she comes. Who, Oh, is it you? Well, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> but she fires a rocket launcher at the CIA's helicopter and it like zooms past them. Yeah. And the one guy in the helicopter just watches it go by. And he goes, we're going to leave now. They're shooting <laughs> rockets at us. And they, they made the helicopter turn. So the helicopter, it looked like the helicopter itself was just watching the path. Yeah. <laughs> of the grenade or whatever it was. That was funny. And then they have Charles Grodin on the radio. And he's like freaking out. He's kind of panicky and it's supposed to be secret. And he's like, just just go. Just just yeah, get, get out. out of there. Bug out. Back out. Get out. Because <laughs> they said, first they send the guy with the rifle just to kill them. Yeah. And you have that. I still, again, I think it's kind of funny when Warren Beatty clues in that they're trying to be assassinated quicker than Dustin Hoffman, who believes everything Charles Grodin tells him. He, like, gives him a pen. He goes, ah, keep the pen. He goes, really? This is a nice pen. Ah, keep it. And then I love that Charles Grodin's always telling him how he's bugging him and following him. He's like, yeah, we know. You know what? You know that he's met the woman. How do you know that? Oh, your pen. It's a bug. (laughs) Then he gives him a beeper, which is just a locator. It's pure silver. Oh, pure silver, you say. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. He knows just how to trick Dustin Hoffman into carrying what he needs him to carry. So he always knows where he is and what he is saying. But when they send that first chopper with the the rifle, Warren Beatty figures figures it out quicker. And he says, run in diagonals. And they're like, Oh, my God. Yeah, I (laughs) cracked up. And actually, it made me think. Um, it made me think of Game of Thrones. Actually. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, uh, I did not go there. Battle of the Bastards <laughs> when a certain somebody dies, and if you haven't seen that show, I don't even you're know what you're doing with your life. Fucking get it together. <laughs> but that's what it made me think of. I was like, Fuck, see, it's sensible. That's sensible. Right. Zigzag. So they start firing their, whatever, AK-47s or something at the chopper. And he's like, whoa, fuck, we're out of here. Then they send the gunship (laughs) and the chopper back. And they start firing rocket. They pulled out the the total uh, Action Jackson weapon, the grenade launcher. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what I thought of. Did you go back to Action Jackson, Chew? I sure didn't. I think I tried to... (laughs) I blocked that movie out of my brain. Shame on you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. 
What was I going to say? Oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Is it just me? First of all, Warren Beatty in this movie plays maybe the sweetest dummy in the history of the world. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But did you notice that he seemed to have a southern accent that came and went? Yeah. Because like, at times he's super southern. Yes. And once I noticed it, I don't know, I was probably like half hour or 45 minutes in. I didn't yeah. remember hearing it previously. Right. Right? Like he and then just, it leaves yeah. and then it comes back. That was bizarre. It's really heavy once in New York, really heavy at a certain point in the desert, and then leaves and then comes back in the desert as well. We're, uh, yeah. <laughs> like, why did he have to have a Southern accent? Like, you both, you started the movie out with them in New York, so I'm just assuming that they're both New Yorkers. Which Apparently not. I understand other people go to New York that have been other places. I understand people move there from other places, so it makes sense that he has a southern <laughs> accent. I just expected him to have a New Yorker accent. I guess. Um, what else, Chu? What else we How got? about the end? Because that's the climactic battle, but all of that fills their, their concert at Shea Casablanca, which I love. Is part of their demands. So the CIA tries to kill two Americans. Yeah. They fail. So because they fail, the CIA has to agree to let this woman and her companions uh, take yeah. over the country. Correct? Sure. Okay. So they're going to take over the country. They'll be better than this murderous asshole who was kind of funny in himself, right? <laughs> he, like, I need these two men to die. But he's also offering, like... Would you like a tea? Yeah. Pepsi? <laughs> <laughs> but I love that they get on the phone with with our two heroes agent and he says, "Okay, so she's going to take over this country. She's taking over the Middle East, and you must prop up my boys with a live in-person concert at Shea Casablanca in Morocco. Like don't fill up Madison Square Garden for us." We want Shea Casablanca, and you have to put out our album. And the CIA's like, okay. Random. <laughs> but is it funny? It's like... I love at the end that Charles yeah. Grota keeps talking to the general. He's like, this is the single. <laughs> you know, they write, <laughs> yeah. they write all these songs themselves. And then just does that cringy smile like, yeah. <laughs> The general is clearly pissed yes. that they agreed to this deal. And Charles Grodin is just like, yeah, it's great, huh? Right? Yeah, it's awesome. Pretty good. I like it, too, when Charles Grodin's on the phone. He's answering, like, seven phones at once, and he picks one up. Oh, that was in my notes. Yeah. That was a, a positive. Jim Harrison spazzing out at the phones. <laughs> good. <laughs> that, that was good. Because I love that, too. In fact... That's one of the lasting, like, funny things I remembered about this movie from when I'd first seen it in 1987 was Charles Grodin saying, we didn't try to kill two Americans in the desert. No, we didn't. <laughs> yeah. Of course not. <laughs> Where'd you hear that from? The Secretary of State? Well, what is, how does he yeah, know? How does he know? <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, all in all... 
It was fine. Just fine. It was funny. It had funny moments. But if we're talking grand scheme of things, it's fine. How many stars? And you should just. Okay, wait. Oh, two. Two out of four. Yeah. All right. I think that's fair. I'll I'll agree it's to that. Three is too generous. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> you did. You didn't earn okay. that. But no. this is not a half-star piece of shit. No. And that's all I'm trying to say. And this movie should have been a half-star piece of shit. <laughs> yes. I think if they'd had if they'd had different actors, two completely different stars, it would have been shit, I'm sure. Uh, but Dustin Hoffman point. and Warren Beatty did as good a job as they could have possibly done. As anybody could With, have possibly done, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think they, I mean, for me personally, they saved the movie from being a half star. Yeah, I have to agree with that. There's something so sweet about their relationship. Yeah. It almost feels like they should be gay lovers. There were a couple of tender moments when they were on the ledge and Dustin Hoffman was... Having a rough go at they it. They grab hands. There were these, yeah, like they, like he that. touched his face. Like, I was like, oh, are they going to, are they going to kiss in 1987? <laughs> are you serious? Bold. Whoa. Uh, they did not. Cool, whatever. Um, but yeah, like they could have almost been romantically involved. They never tell us. That's, that's one grievance. They never, that whole plot line about the woman and them both essentially being in love with her kind of, you know, yeah. goes nowhere and fizzles out. Except, like, what a great moment for her, too. She's genuinely crying. Look at them, looking at them make their terrible music and saying, I just think they're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that she purely thought that they themselves doing what they love to do were wonderful and not necessarily like, wow, this music they've made is wonderful because it's not. But you know what I mean? Is like, it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what's Debatable. the uh, what's the drinking game, Chu? What's the drinking game for Ishtar? Um, <laughs> you must take would... a drink every time. Go. Every time they sing one of their shitty ass songs or... Every time Warren Beatty's character thinks that he's not quite like a, a handsome man or a charismatic man as he thinks he is. I would say the songs, though. Every time they break into song or they're trying to make a song, you got to drink. So you'd probably be wasted in the first half hour. Yeah. Because it's a lot of there, that. There's a lot of that in the beginning. Hmm. What do you think? I mean, I think you're, I, you know, it's got to kind of be that, doesn't it? It has to involve the music, no? Yeah, because, I mean, that's ultimately the whole point of the movie. I really like so they, that they moment, by the way, that. when they're in the middle of the desert. They're dying because they haven't, they've run out of water. They might have already survived almost being shot by militia. And Warren Beatty says, oh, my God. 
we missed our show tonight. <laughs> yeah. And they're like devastated. They're devastated about being unprofessional, about never being invited back, how they've lost Morocco forever as a place where they can play. Oh my God. <laughs> it's... Like their priorities are so out of whack. I'm telling you, there are jokes in this movie that work. They shouldn't, but I'm telling you straight, they do. It was good. Actually, you know, their relationship when they're um, in the beginning and they're trying to work on music and stuff and they're literally like feeding off of each other and trying to finish each other's lyrics or whatever. Mm -hmm. It reminded me, have you seen that skit, that SNL skit? It's on Weekend Update and Kristen Wiig and Fred Armisen play oh, yes. the couple yes. where they're never prepared and they right. always have to sing. That's kind of what it is. And they're trying to just same the, sing the same lyrics, clearly not knowing what <laughs> right. they're supposed to say. You're right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. It is kind of like that. But that's part of their charm. They're so hapless. I love these two hapless singers. Yeah, I do too. And the thing is, like when the so the movie ends with their record at a discount price in the same music store that they were looking at the Simon and Garfunkel yeah. album in. I could imagine said like special low price yeah, or something. Yeah. I could imagine <laughs> buying their album ironically and enjoying it ironically. Oh yeah. Like loving how bad it is. Like it being like a gag gift. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. Should we give a, you want to give it a, an attempt? No, I couldn't find the lyrics during the break. So if anybody's singing it, it's you. No, we have to both do it. I'll edit this out. <laughs> Just, you should write it down. <laughs> I'll edit it out, but you don't. I do. I'll be good. <laughs> I promise. Just leave it in and make me think that it's, um, I don't. I don't know the lyrics, though. Telling the truth can be dangerous business. Write that down. How much of this are we singing? Just the four lines. Okay. Can be dangerous business. Dangerous business. Honest and popular don't oh. go hand in hand. <laughs> I don't know why that line cracks me up the most. <laughs> uh, okay. If you admit that you can play the accordion. No one will something. No one will hire you in a rock and roll band. Should we do the, but we can sing our hearts out? No. Okay. I have very little range. What should I say? Should I say, should I say, uh, I think I said something like, should we give it a try to yeah. We could take that over. I was like, Chu, do you know the do you know any of the the lyrics to that song? And you could just say, I actually I wrote down the first four lines. Okay. Me too. Let's do it. 
Okay. All right. Yep. Here we go. Okay. Well, I mean, we should finish it out, Chew. Did you... Do you know the lyrics to that that last song? Did you... I maybe or may have not have written down the first four lyrics. <laughs> I wrote down the whole song. So are you saying telling the truth? Telling yeah. the truth? Oh, let's give the fans what they want, you. All right. Here comes my Grammy. Are you ready? <laughs> and a three and a two and a one. Telling the truth the can truth be... Can be oh, dangerous. come on, you. What? At the I'm same time. point. Three, okay. two, one. <laughs> then you go. <laughs> What's the matter with you? This is more fun, actually. I was all by myself. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be terrible. All right. Three, two, one. Telling, Telling the truth, the truth can, be can be dangerous business. business. Honest, Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Are you trying to line up with me? Because you're behind on me. <laughs> you're behind on me. <laughs> no, you're behind on me. What's wrong with Zoom? <laughs> I don't know. But it's really fun. I think I'm just singing too fast. Maybe. All right. Let's try it one more time. Okay. Three, two, one. Telling the, the truth, truth can be dangerous business. Honest and popular don't go hand in hand. If you admit that you can play the accordion, no one will hire you in a rock and roll band. There you go, everybody. Wow. That was fun. We're going to win some kind of podcasting award with that shit. <laughs> Somebody's going to come up with the How Dare You Podcast podcast, and we're going to be on there. <laughs> this episode. <laughs> this episode might be the episode that ends the podcast. <laughs> Just like this movie ended Elaine May's directing career. <laughs> People are going to be like, yeah, it was going fine, and then they and then they did the singing bit. And then they the did end. Ishtar. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, would you recommend this movie? Should people see Ishtar? Um, Fuck yeah, they should see Ishtar. Yeah, I think for a couple of reasons, to realize that this isn't the worst movie ever. Exactly. That Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty were actually very good in it and funny. Right. And just accept the fact that the the plot's weird as fuck, you guys. It's so fucking weird. It's bizarre. <laughs> well said, Chew. All right. I agree. I think people should watch Ishtar. Ishtar doesn't suck. And any bit of it that does suck, sucks in just the right way. <laughs> All right, that's fair. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Anything else? Nope. Good day to you then, madam. Good day, sir. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll be back next week for another movie. Until then, fucking watch Ishtar. <laughs> Say bye, Chew. Bye, everybody. Heartfelt.
It's so aggressive. God damn it. <laughs> I was sincere, you guys. Goodbye. Liar. All right. <laughs> I'll say goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening. See ya. <laughs> Why do I sound like such an ass? <laughs> you should leave that in there. Have you ever heard these sounds from a camel? If so, then you've simply heard a camel because this is what they sound like even when they're not blind. But if you're like my friend Lady Chu, you find blind camels distressing and she would like you to help save the blind camels. Lady Chu doesn't want anybody to have to feel triggered when watching a blind camel stumbling around the desert like a drunk asshole. That's why she's asking you to help the blind camels by donating as much as you can to the Chu Saves the Camels initiative. Most of the money will be spent on pot gummies to help Lady Chu with her anxiety, but at least one quarter of the rest of the money will go straight to the camels. Lady Chu wants the Chu Saves the Camels initiative to become one of the top three leading camel-saving initiatives. She's not greedy or hardworking. So won't you donate today to help a camel? Thank you. <laughs>